Today we have Ashley Wilson on the show. Ashley Wilson is a multifamily investor and real estate operator who knows how to win. Ashley has been a big contributor within the Bigger Pockets community. One of her videos on YouTube has over 30,000 views. She believes that repetition, a strong mindset, and operations will win the day in multifamily real estate investing moving forward. Listen and learn. Before we jump into the intro, I want to let everyone know I wrote a book called Why Not You? You can find it on Amazon by searching my name. Why did I write a book? To inspire others to go after their goals and dreams. Because too many people are afraid to take a chance. Because I wish I started earlier. And to share what I've learned. Who is it for? Anyone with that pit in their stomach that wants to do something, but they're afraid to try. Action takers and someone who likes to learn from others. This book is not the five steps to getting rich or anything like that. But for less than $20 and a few hours of reading, you could be well on your way to deciding to go after that goal that lives in the pit of your stomach. Now, on to the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Ashley Wilson before we start the show. Ashley lives in the Pennsylvania area. She was a collegiate athlete and is extremely competitive. She started with single family and scaled up into multifamily. She knows the value of hard work, how to mimic game-like situations, and knows how to win. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Ashley Wilson with us. Ashley, appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So uh, just a little bit on how we know each other. This is actually our first time talking, um, but I know of Ashley through social media and through uh, her affiliation with Bigger Pockets, and she's just killed it on, on YouTube with, with different videos. So I'm interested to hear about that. So with that, how many properties and how many units are you invested in? Actively, I have three properties currently, a uh, little under 800 units, but I have invested in a few thousand over both actively and passively. We sold a few properties last year. Um, so that was great to go full cycle on a couple of deals. And then also I'm passively invested um, in about a few hundred units as well outside of my company's portfolio. Fantastic. So your company's name, Bar Down Investments, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So where do you, where do you come up with that name? Both my husband and I, we co-founded the company together and my husband was a professional ice hockey player. Um, I also was a division one athlete and I also compete nationally in riding. So being involved in sports and, you know, that team mentality is very transferable to the business world. 
we really like team concepts and we really wanted to play off of our sports experience in naming the company. Bar Down is the best shot. It's the most difficult shot to take, but it's also the most beautiful shot that you take in hockey and also in soccer. They use that terminology too, where it hits the top of the crossbar and then goes in the net. So we wanted to um, incorporate that as when you invest with us, you are giving yourself the best chance of having success and we're doing things the right way. So it encapsulates everything we want our company to stand for. Yeah, that's huge. So I'm assuming when you said you were a collegiate athlete, it was it was for riding? It actually was for field hockey. Oh, was it really? Okay. Yeah, so I was a field hockey player in college. I um, Most people don't know this, but I had the opportunity to also play ice hockey and lacrosse oh, wow. um, in Division One as well. But it's challenging enough to play one Division One sport, let alone three. So I opted to play field hockey because I was still competing with riding as well. I still compete today. I actually just got back from nationals yesterday um, for the year. So it's a very um, time intense sport. So having two sports going on at the same time was enough for me. That's huge. Um, where did you, where did you go to school and where do you, where do you live currently? I went to Colgate university, which is in upstate New York in Hamilton, New York. And I live currently in Radnor, Pennsylvania, which is about 30 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Fantastic. So a, f- a few things before we get into c- kind of the multifamily world, um, you know, being an athlete, playing at the college and your husband at the professional level, um, a lot of that is transferable, like you said. I mean, I'm thinking persistence, you know, determination, competing. You know, these multifamily deals, there could be 15, 20 different buying groups that, you know, are, are participating and, and bidding on the project. And so having that perseverance, can you talk to how that helps, like all the work that you put in, you know, as an athlete and how you transfer that into, you know, having the persistence and determination and being able to compete in the, in the business world. When you're an athlete, a lot of what you do very successfully comes through repetition and to your point, persistence. And when you run through a drill, you're trying to mimic a game-like situation. So you're constantly taking such scenarios in a game and then replaying them on the practice field. And with multifamily, you're kind of doing the same thing. It might not be as transparent to someone who is not or doesn't have athletic background experience. But in reality, when you learn about multifamily, when you're listening to podcasts and reading books and attending conferences, that's almost like your practice setting. And the practice setting is mirroring what it is you're gaining from other people's experience. And going through the repetition of, let's say, for example, underwriting and deal sourcing, that's a lot of repetition. Pre-COVID, we had a 200 to 1 conversion ratio. Um, Post-COVID, it's looking more like 400 to 1. Um, You know, I guess today, I should say, because it's not really exactly post-COVID, but I don't think there will ever be a post-COVID. I don't know when that day starts, but we're probably looking at more of a 400 to one conversion. So if you're not uh, having a very strong mindset and you're 
willing to persist through adversity. I don't think being an active investor in multifamily might be the best fit, or maybe the role of sourcing and underwriting isn't the best fit in multifamily. You might be better at, let's say, um, investor relations or, um, you know, operations of the actual asset. But it takes a very strong-willed mindset to um, be on the front end of um, acquiring properties just because there are a lot of no's. And um, being an athlete, when you're on teams that struggle and then you're on teams that win championships, to have that experience in such a dichotomy between um, what you do in different situations um, because they call on different tools to be pulled out is very similar to when things are really tight as they are today in multifamily versus when things are more frothy. And what we saw, you know, in the three to five year run up to where we are today. When you're talking about that, I'm thinking learning how to win. I mean, you know, learning how to win in sports, learning how to win in, you know, the multifamily investing world. Um, getting that first deal is so difficult, but then once you get that, you, you can repeat it. And people have always said that the second and third and the fourth is, is so much easier. So I love that you talk about repetition. I love that you talk about strong mindset. Um, so you started investing when? When did you start investing? What's your background besides um, your, your collegiate athlete? I started investing in 2009. Um, so we started looking into real estate in 2007. Um, my husband was the one who actually brought it to my attention. Um, I was working in clinical uh, pharmace- pharmaceuticals. So I worked in clinical R&D worked for Santa Fe Aventis, Wyeth, which is now Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline. And at the end of my tenure in pharma, I worked in, I was the um, di- director of global project management for the vaccine division at GlaxoSmithKline. And um, we ran clinical trials prior to regulatory approval. So we would run clinical trials, get them submitted and especially, I think everyone is more familiar with it today with the current pandemic of COVID. Um, but essentially we were running all of these trials, um, pretty quickly to provide vaccines across the world. There are countries that are still, um, having high death tolls due to chickenpox, which we take for granted living in the U S is non-life-threatening, um, virus, but it actually is extremely life-threatening, especially in third world countries. So, those are things that we worked on um, in pharma. And while I was working in pharma, obviously, you know, it's the golden handcuff industry and it's very um, drilled into you that your investing options are solely the stock market. Um, so I grew up thinking, you know, I would just work my little tail off and get to a corner office and uh, hopefully have a pension that would carry me through retirement. And that is just not reality. My husband was the one who really awakened me to a different world um, with real estate. How and did he get exposed came, to what, what he was look, 
he, he also was doing well very early on and he's Canadian and I tend to find Canadians overall to be more fiscally responsible. I think it's because of how their debt system is structured, their credit, excuse me, their credit system, which ties into debt. So the U S credit system is based on the belief that in order to establish credit, you must have debt. The Canadian credit system is based on the fact that in order to build credit, you have to have zero debt. So that philosophy creates more um, fiscally responsible, I believe, creates more fiscally responsible individuals. They don't buy off a debt for right or wrong. I mean, you could argue that there's good debt and leveraging debt, especially in an inflationary time, is very advantageous to one's wealth building. But overall, when you're first starting out, it creates very fiscally responsible individuals, my husband being one of them. So he looked into alternative investments. He wasn't a firm believer in the stock market, essentially because of two reasons. One is it's not an asset-backed investment. And number two, it has very little to no um, tax advantages. Those were the two drivers that had him look for alternative investments in 2006. And he, in 2007, he stumbled upon bigger pockets, which eventually turned into Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then obviously, you know, we drank the Kool-Aid and couldn't ever turn back. And, and now we knew of all these different investments, not even just related to real estate, but different investments in general. Um, and he got me listening to bigger pockets in 2007. And that's when we really started to dive into it. By 2009, we were ready to make our first investment. It coincided with, um, uh, the tax advantage that the Obama administration had implemented for first time home buyers. So it was really advantageous for us to buy a home, um, at that time because of the tax credit. We also got into short-term, so we house hacked that, but we also got into short-term rentals as well at the time. So today everyone calls them Airbnbs, but at that time, especially in the market we were in, VRBO was the dominant source, Airbnb, no one used Airbnb. So, um, so we utilized that platform and we started investing while we were working and we did very, very well. Um, I look back on that and I'm shocked that we didn't, I don't know why we didn't go into short-term rentals. I think we were so distracted by our careers, but eventually that turned into, um, my father's a general contractor. He's had his own business for over 40 years. Um, I left the pharma industry. I started three different companies, non-real estate related. And then eventually I started a company with my dad, um, flipping high-end homes in 2014. So my dad and I started that business um, all in the suburbs of uh, Philadelphia. And we grew that business to a pretty large, you know, undertaking in terms of like per volume that's in this area. We were known as the only company focusing on high-end full gut rehabs of historic homes, mm. which there are, are a lot in this area as Philadelphia used to be the capital of the United States. So um you know, it just lent itself really well to our lifestyle at the time. And then when my husband retired about five years ago, um, we knew we always wanted to get into commercial real estate. We realized that it was a very relationship-based business, but because at the tail end of his career, we were living in Europe and Russia, we couldn't be here in the States um, making those face-to-face -face interactions. Today, we have so much 
the, the normalcy of u- utilizing technology to foster relationships wasn't the way it is today, five years ago, even, which sure. is surprising to say, but you know, you'd think just five years ago, we would have utilized technology more, but we really didn't, we didn't leverage it as a society. I think COVID, um, definitely amplified that and accelerated our Absolutely. use of technology for fostering relationships. Um, so today I'm able to, you know, work outside of Philadelphia, but all of our portfolio is actually today, it's all in Houston. So that has been a significant change on the technology front. And we, we got into commercial real estate in 2018. Um, initially I was partnering with other, other folks, people really, liked the fact that I had this management coupled with construction. So it was a natural fit for me to go into asset and construction management. Um, Fortunately and unfortunately, I was in a challenging partnership situation, which um, really focused on just getting the deal to close and then nothing from there. So I spent a lot of time learning every single. What do you mean by that? Um, You know, because people in the multifamily world, partner a lot, right? With lots Mm -hmm. of different people. And, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of syndicators and some, and when it comes to partnerships, where I've heard kind of the disconnect where people have said, I've had a bad partner has been not as much to do with the actual deal, but just the view on their moral compass, like how, how they look at things. So, were you in one of those situations? Yes. And I think the people can either play victim and say, poor me. And, you know, I'm in this difficult situation or they can look at it as a huge opportunity. And the opportunity that I took from it is I'm going to learn everything there is to know about investing in multifamily because I'm going to bet on myself. And that meant I'm going to learn every single aspect of sourcing deals, every single aspect of underwriting deals, every single aspect of providing the debt and the equity on these deals to get them to close, due diligence, um, title, insurance. um, And then once we close, then actually the hard work begins. And that's when you have to operate. And I think that there are a lot of folks, it wasn't just the partners that I had picked, um, but there were a lot of folks that were able to get by on focusing on just acquiring the deal. And the cap rate compression that we saw over the past three to five years carried them to really fantastic returns. Um, I actually just spoke about this at the Bigger Pockets conference that I, there were about 400 people in attendance on the the conversation I was having. The title of my presentation was the cap rate con speculation, manipulation of cap rates and what to look out for was essentially the, the topic. And one of the things I talked about is I, I surveyed the audience of 400 people and I said, how many people have invested in, in, you know, an apartment deal and almost everyone raised their hand. And then I said, okay, how many of those deals have come full cycle recently? And about 50% of the audience raised their hand. And then I said, how many of those deals returned more than what you expected them to return over what was originally performed? And everyone kept their hand up. 
And then he said, okay, out of everyone that has their hand up, how many people asked for the performa, the actual performa versus what the underwritten performa was down to the projected cap rate on exit? Only two people in the audience had their hands still up. And the reason being is investors don't ask for that information if their returns are outperformed. But when you look at a sensitivity analysis table, you can clearly see that really cap rate compression was what carried the deal out, not NOI performance. In fact, the metrics that I used was something to the effect of, you know, I, I had, you know, a a sample property and let's say for example, at a four and a half kit, it was a 14 IRR. If you, you hit your target NOI, but then if you, your cap rate compressed to three, seven, five, and you underperformed by 8%, so negative 8% on your NOI, you still ended up with a 20 IRR. Right. That's what really has saved a lot of people. So let me ask you this. So we're, I mean, we're going forward, right? And we're in an inflationary environment. So I want to get your take on this. Um, Mm -hmm. Real estate's supposed to be a great hedge to inflation, right? And so... If there's wage inflation, in my mind, that that can continue to have rents go up. But if if interest rates keep going up, then you'd think cap rates are going to follow and, and rise as well. So what's going to have a bigger impact? The that is such a in inflation and rents, or the negative impact of increased cap rates? That is. Honestly, a brilliant question. And I think it's a question that a lot of people aren't asking. I personally, I think if I knew the answer to that, I'd be getting paid ball, right? more than, yeah, <laughs> than I am being paid. But here's the thing. I think there are a lot of factors, right? So you hit the nail on the head. You, you have you have an inflationary environment. You have interest rate um, interest rates rising, you have cap rate expansion going on, which, which is a trickle down effect, but you also have, um, the permits issued, right? So you also have to take in consideration the supply. So the supply of apartments is also going to have an impact. So one of the things that I look for is also building material cost. So if building material costs, which is started to cool down, um, I recently wrote a post on this on LinkedIn, actually last week on on, on where we're at in terms of the building uh, material costs. Material costs have significantly come down in most cases are at pre-COVID rates for certain materials. But the point is, is that watching those building material costs is going to be a huge deterrent or... Um, you know, catalyst for whether or not developers continue to build because it's not going to be as um, lucrative. And let's face it, new development is hands down the riskiest investment in the multifamily space in terms of, you know, if you're going to go for value add or if you're going to buy already existing versus developing, it is hands down the riskiest investment. And in part, because right now as a developer, how are you performing out your interest rate when you refi into a permanent loan. 
So developers, when they're building, they're under a construction loan, but they have to, they have to perform a, okay, well, it's going to take me, let's say 12 months before I can refi into a permanent loan from today. What is that interest rate environment going to look like? And if it's too high and land cost is, you know, the sellers of, of raw land are just out of touch with what the land value truly is, then developers are going to pass. So I think that there are, there, that is another variable that comes into play. And I think the challenge is what variable outweighs, um, you know, and it's one of those things where it's like, Two years from now, we're going to say, oh, well, that was an obvious answer. That yeah. was, you know, it's, it's easy, so obvious. It's much easier looking back, right? It's so much easier. But if the answer was something else, we would have the same response. Oh, that's obvious that that outweighed. But right now, the reality is it's not obvious. So in terms of trying to figure out, okay, what is going to be, um, you know, what what is going to carry more weight? I, I don't know the answer to that. What I'm trying to do is look at all the variables and just understand that they're all impacting. So it's not just happening in this vacuum um, where only like two variables are at play. I think there are multiple variables at play. And at the end of the day, capital goes to where it's treated best. I heard that from someone I interviewed though. That was not my, my quote that that is something that someone once said to me. And if capital is not attracted to multifamily anymore, I think a lot of family offices and institutional investors are a little hesitant to place capital today in multifamily coupled with the debt market. The debt market is still on hold. They had such a good Q1 and Q2 that they're not as bullish on placing their capital. So that is another reason, you know, it's harder to get deals done, not only because of interest rates, but because of LTV. And when you have higher LTV, that becomes challenging. But at the same time, when interest rates get to a certain point, are they going to be at the point in which maybe it's better to invest, to fund the deal strictly with equity? Because equity's cost hasn't gone up as much as the debt has. So I think that's something to take into consideration as well. So on that piece, I mean, I've heard that when we go, you know, because I have, I've only been in this market for about four years and but I've heard that in really troubled times um, that people do go to kind of 100% equity and, and raise everything. And then, and I've also heard that some people, some institutions, you know, that have raised large funds, huge funds, they have to deploy that capital, that some of them, you know, are considering, hey, maybe we just buy this asset, you know, 100% cash, wait for the debt markets to come back and then put a loan on it and, and then leverage it up. Um, so that definitely can hap- happen. Now, when you said that the cost is lower, I, I'm not sure if I understand that because most of the returns on, on equity have been, what, mid to, mid-teens to, you know, 20% plus, right, annualized. And even high interest rates of 7% or whatever is, is, much lower than the equity returns. So, um, you know, what's your, where are you getting that the equity is, is l- lower than the, the um, you know, financing? So let's say, for example, that you have a debt that's charging 7% on, right. on the debt, right? 
Well, today you can typically get investors anywhere from a four to six pref. So if you can pay out four to six pref, then your debt is lower than institutional debt. Now, to your point on the sale, um, and you kind of preluded to it when you talked about talking about family offices refinancing into a, once the debt market cools off, they can refinance into a perm loan. So what you can do is, let's say you buy a property today and you pay out even a six pref annualized to your investors. You bought it in all cash. You have a six pref to your investors. You get the property performing. You refinance the property once the debt market is cooled down. And I would argue that the best way to return the highest quote unquote IRR returns would be to um, when you refi, it's return of capital versus return on capital. So then your returns, whatever. And it's a non-taxable event. Non-taxable event. And then also what ends up happening is that investor, those investors then have money to deploy in additional investments, whatever their initial shares of the investment are, are still in, but it's based off of what capital they have remaining in the deal. That's one way to structure it. That doesn't necessarily mean you structure it that way. No, but, but that's, that's interesting because I wasn't thinking of it that way. I was thinking about the total return, but you're, you're looking at it like, okay, well, the cash outlay, the debt service would be, you know, X at 7%, but if you can get a four to 6% pref, your, your actually cash outlay would be, would be less. And then yes. you kind of get the, the uh, performance up and when the debt markets are better, then you can, you know, lever it up and and return capital. You're Um, almost treating it like a short-term loan in a sense. Right. Even though it's not a short-term loan. That's that's an interesting, interesting concept. The way you think of it. It's harder to do because, you know, uh, the basis of everything has gone up so much that capital raises are, are quite large. Um, so to go all equity would be, uh, could be a, a big uh, undertaking. And people are getting more cautious. You know, I, I, I've seen it. You know, people are, are getting, you know, either all the news is about, you know, there's going to be a recession coming and it could be a really, really you know, difficult one. And so investors are starting to get a little bit, you know, wary. Should I just you know, hold my cash and wait, you know? And so that becomes a concern as well. Hey, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit on you. You are a very seasoned and you're, you're smart girl. You, you, you know a lot about what you're talking about. Why did you get the name, the name I see on your Instagram, bad ash? Like you seem like a, like a nice person. Like you don't seem like a bad ash. Like how do you, so talk to me about that. Bad Ash is more um, originating from being super savvy in real estate that you're extremely knowledgeable and well-equipped to do something to the highest level. That's more the thinking behind it. It's not a personality thing. It's more of an actionable... I think I'm pretty well-known in multifamily as being incredibly savvy on all aspects of multifamily. Even though I started specializing in asset and construction management, I can do every single aspect of the business and I can do it well. And I can, um, you know, I can be in a room of 
underwriters. I could be in a room of brokers. I could be in a room of operators, um, capital raisers, whatever, whatever aspect of the business that, um, you know, you threw me in, I am incredibly knowledgeable. I've spent thousands of hours educating myself on it. And I think that's what makes me badass because of the fact that, um, I'm sure a lot of people have certain impressions of, um, you know, women in real estate in general, especially in commercial real estate and especially within construction, but I'm extremely knowledgeable about construction with, um, you know, the benefit that I had growing up with my father in construction and the exposure that I received at a very early age. I'm very knowledgeable about the business from multiple angles. And that has really helped me to understand everyone's viewpoint. So I don't come at real estate by looking at it from an investor standpoint. I also know how to look at it from a supplier standpoint, like a contractor standpoint. I spent thousands of hours understanding property management and understanding their viewpoint and um, why they make the actions that they, you know, take um, from an investor standpoint. That's why I continually passively invest to understand, you know, how investment offerings are being done, how they're being portrayed, what trends are in the market. So I can speak to, you know, our investors and what they want um, because that shifts as well. And then obviously operating our properties is extremely important to us and that's what we're known for. So I think that is being badass is fully having a 360 oh, that's approach. Cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you explained that. Cause like, you know, without, meeting you without talking to you, like that name, Bad Ash, I, w- I was thinking like, this girl's going to be like, you know, she's going to have an attitude. She's going to have, you know, <laughs> and, and it doesn't come across that way at all. So um, in any event, hey, how did you get your affiliation with Bigger Pockets? And, um, you know, I've seen some of the, some of your videos have like 38,000 views. Like it's, it, you know, crazy. So talk about your affiliation with Bigger Pockets and um, maybe the impact that social media has played, um, you know, in you you putting yourself out there and educating people and um, that sort of thing. Bigger Pockets has been a huge influence for me. So I am a huge believer that when someone provides value to you, it is your responsibility to provide value back to others. And that is how I got involved with Bigger Pockets. I started writing articles for Bigger Pockets, posts for Bigger Pockets. I just reached out to them and told them what I was doing. And not a lot of people were focusing on high end flips at the time. So that was something that um, I could speak to very proficiently. And I also, too, could speak to full gut rehabs and historic homes and high price point homes. And that was kind of very niche for us. That's why we were able to acquire our conversion ratio in single family is seven to one. So every seven offers we made, we would get at least one property. Um, so I just am very willing to share exactly how I'm doing things. To me, that's that's not the X factor. The X factor is me, you know, and the X factor is you, you know, that that's the determinant on whether or not you have success, not the access to information. Access to information is part of it, but you have to have the drive and the follow-up to actually 
achieve that success. So to me, it's not threatening for me to share information. In fact, I want people to have success too, because it just builds a stronger community for us all to learn from and, and be successful together. I approached Bigger Pockets. I started writing articles for them. They eventually asked me to be, um, so Bigger Pockets years ago did uh, live videos on YouTube. And I was the only woman, there were only five of us asked. I was the only woman at that time to do that. So I was really proud. And I was also the only commercial real estate. Everyone else I think was in, I might be wrong on that. That might be incorrect. Cause I think Paul Moore was doing um, commercial at that time, but there were very few of us, few of us doing, doing that series. Um, so I started with that and then they circled back to me a couple of years ago and asked me to do a multifamily series, live multifamily series. And I did that for a year and a half for them. My partner, Jay Scott. So I originally mentioned that my husband and I co-founded the company together, but my husband doesn't want to be actively involved in the day-to-day of the business anymore. So I brought on another partner, Jay Scott. Jay is very um, entrenched in the bigger pockets. He's one of the original contributors to bigger pockets, and he's had a huge influence um, with bigger pockets. Um, so Jay has also helped me foster that relationship as well in a more in-depth um, ability, I guess. Uh, so I'm really happy. That wasn't the reason that, you know, that, um, I decided to partner with Jay. I, Jay has so much merit on his own right. And he's, I couldn't ask for a better partner to be perfectly honest, talking about having your morals and your ethics aligned. We are a hundred percent aligned. Um, it's crazy, uh, how aligned we are, but, um, but that makes a great partnership. So, you know, Jay's heavily involved in bigger pockets and I'm heavily involved in bigger pockets. We're just very happy to give back. And then with respect to your second question with social media, that's something actually, I don't think I do very well. Really? <laughs> um, I think it's all about perspective because, you know, it's that gap and gain, uh, the book, the gap and the gain. Right. I'm someone who, um, I'm trying to do a better job of living in the game, but I um, default to the gap. So I'm always looking at, you know, I could do this so much better. And um, for the listener's yeah, so point of view, what she's referring to is there's a book out by Dan Sullivan, The Gap and the Gain. And um, it's, a, it's a good book. So if either, you know, any of you want to pick it up, pick it up. But uh, sorry to jump in. Oh, no problem. Yep. Um, and Dan Sullivan wrote the book, Who Not How, which Another most people, book. I think, know that book better than The Gap in the Game. But they're both incredible books. So anyway, with social media, I think social media has um, obviously provided credibility for some reason. To me, social media is the white coat um, phenomenon. And what I mean by that is when you walk into... Um, a medical office and you see someone in a white coat, all of a sudden they have authority and they might not even be a doctor, but you know, all of a sudden you just have this impression that they're, they probably are a doctor. Um, and that to me is social media, social media, when all of a sudden you have a blue check mark or you have, you know, um, thousands of followers, all of a sudden people find your information to be credible. I would caution everyone that is not always the case. Um, but I'm guilty know, of that. Like, look, I saw a video of yours that had 38,000 views. I'm like, this girl must know what she's talking about. 
like that's the way you may and, yeah. and you and you you backed it up here but like you may <laughs> not have you. right yeah so, exactly so, go ahead i'm sorry it jumped in no no it's true though because you never you never really know unless you truly dive in and get to know someone so don't always be fooled by social media, um, but social media is an incredible platform to grow an audience and to grow a brand. And um, it, today it's, you know, if you look back, let's say 10 or 15 years ago, it, were you a business if you didn't have a website, right? People needed that credibility of having a website. Well, today you still need a website, but today I would say you need a social media presence. And are you really a brand and a business, you know, is there reliability in what you do and what services you provide or products you provide unless you have a social media presence? So to me, that's, that's kind of like the business card requirement of, you know, 20 years ago um, is having a social media presence. So I, I get that. I've never heard, heard that, you know, put that way in terms of the white coat phenomenon, but I, I completely understand where you're coming from with that. Um, you know, when people have asked me about it, I've, I explained like, look, I wasn't even on, I wasn't on Facebook, nothing until I got into real estate about four years ago. Um, but I did, I started to see the value of connecting with people outside of my local market, um, all across the country. And then, then I was going on entrepreneurial conferences and people were like, you need to get on Instagram and other, you know, other platforms. And I didn't have any clue what to do, you know? So I hired people to tell me what to do. And, and um, but the interesting part for me has been, you know, connecting with people that I wouldn't have connected with, you know? So somebody all of a sudden reaches out from Chicago or from, you know, another country potentially. And, and you know, we have a conversation that we wouldn't have had prior. Now the, the truck, you know, the, Difficult part is sometimes I have these conversations and I have no idea if they ever take action afterwards, you know? Um, but like you, I think that giving back, like for you, bigger pockets was a huge value. So you give back to the bigger pockets community because the bigger pockets community helps you. I've had so many people help me that I want to help the next guy too. And I think that that the industry is very collaborative that way. And um, there's a lot of people that just give back. And so you talked before we started the, the um, recording, you had told me that you actually have two different avenues, you know, where people can get involved with you. You've got a coaching avenue and you've got an investing avenue. Can you talk to those two um, different facets? So anyone listening who wants to go about doing exactly what Jay and I do, um, we, so you're an active investor, meaning you actually want to physically find these properties, operate the properties, raise capital, whatever aspect of the business you want to actively do. Uh, we have a coaching platform. It's called Apartment Addicts, and it is a 12-step program telling you how to acquire and operate your first apartment deal. So what sets us apart from other uh, platforms is the fact that we teach you how to find, fund, and run apartments. A lot of platforms out there teach you how to find and fund them, but they don't teach you how to actually operate them. How do you and manage them once you buy it? Right. Absolutely. And I'm a firm believer, and I've said this quote for years now, that operations is a very important aspect to running multifamily properties, but in tough times, it is the most important aspect 
And I think we are arguably in tough times. So knowing how to operate properties today, I think is more important than it's been in a long time. Cap rate compression is not going to carry out these deals. Um, if you have to sell a property today, you might be in a really tough spot. And that's why I think operations are extremely important and something we focus on heavily in the program. If you are someone who, um, you know, you either enjoy what you do. I always say just because you invest in real estate doesn't mean you actually have to like it. Um, you can actually just use it to help you build wealth. And you can you like can the returns, it. but not you like, like the returns right. or the tax advantages. Right. Um, but you might not actually enjoy doing the business of it. That's totally fine. Or maybe you do, but you love your job more. Um, so if that's someone, if that speaks to you, our company, Bardown Investments at bardowninvestments.com, you can go on there and you can sign up to be a passive investor, which means you'll have access to all of the offerings. We also, and this is for anyone really, every single Tuesday, Jay issues a newsletter out to our entire audience. And Jay is brilliant uh, person, but what he is really, really good at is um, taking complicated concepts and making them very easy to understand. So if you're wondering what's going on with the market, um, our economics, our national economics, the stock market, interest rates. He breaks down everything every single week and um, very relevant content for today. So, you know, what the Fed is doing, um, uh, what what uh, investment vehicles are stronger investment vehicles today than, and it's not multifamily. It's not a, it's not a pitch fest at all. It's, it's really purely educational. So we have a lot of people on our list that actually just want to read um, Jay's insights um, just because he's so brilliant when it comes to market economics. That's, that's great. I mean, look in, in this world, there are certain words that are intimidating, you know, and, and, but once you understand what they are, it's really not. But, you know, to people that aren't living it day to day, I mean, just the word syndication, right, can scare away a lot of people. Like, oh, man, what is that? That sounds so complicated. And it's just a group of people coming together to buy an asset you couldn't buy on your own, you know. And But that word can, can really scare people off. You mentioned one before, alternative investments. Well, that's two, two words that, you know, aren't difficult words, but you put them together. And I think there's a lot of people in this country that are like, oh, alternative investments. That's, that's for like the elite. That's for the, you know, super wealthy. So explain what that means in a simplified manner. You know, can you? Alternative investments are really just investments outside of the stock market. That's how most people think of them. I mean, that, and they're accessible to everybody now. And that's part of like why I have this podcast, why you have the blog, why Jay has his blog is to let more people know that you can get involved. You know, um, it's, it's within, it's accessible to all of us. I mean, it's, it really is crazy. I, I wish I had been doing it since I was in my twenties. So anyway, I digress. I think we all wish we were doing it since our 20s. And what's crazy is I go to these conferences now and the, you can't get over how many teenagers are in the audience. It's amazing. I mean, if I had this information when I was a teenager, I, I mean, the world is really limitless, but 
the start of which you start taking action on all of this information, you just have so much power. You have power because of the 10,000 hour rule and you achieve the 10,000 hour rule so much earlier. And then you can just constantly reinvest every single time. Um, and that makes generational wealth. Absolutely. So I'm sure you've come across a lot of millionaires in the in real estate world, right? How many of those and millionaires, billionaires. what's that? And billionaires. And billionaires. Like, saved their way to wealth. Zero. I mean, that's the whole thing is like, we're trained, you know, get good grades, go to, you know, college, get good grades, you know, get a good job in a good company and climb the corporate ladder and put 10, 20% away. That's how most people are trained. And I was trained that way. And then all of a sudden you, once you meet other people and they, they start telling you how much wealth they're building by just owning cash flowing assets. It's crazy. It's, it really is. And so listen, listeners, if you have not invested in real estate, I'm telling you, it's, you got to get around people that have to share stories. I always like to say that the wealthy aren't wealthy because they make more money. The wealthy are wealthy because they invest more money. And how do they invest more money? Because they keep more money that they earn through investing in tax advantage strategies. So whether that's through oil and gas, whether that's through real estate, they pick an investment vehicle that works well for them personally. And then they keep more money than the average person does, meaning that they're not paying as many taxes through all the tax advantage situations that we have in our current tax code. So one action you can take from just listening to today is aligning yourself with a CPA that focuses in real estate or any sort of tax advantage strategy where they're not giving you investing advice because of a biased reason, meaning they're receiving commissions if you invest in one asset versus another. It's really important that you align yourself with a CPA that is very well-versed because you should have a meeting every single year to structure how do I minimize my tax exposure, my tax liability every single year. And some people would argue, well, those CPAs cost, you know, double what I'm paying my CPA. They may cost double, but I'm telling you, you would probably pay them 10x based off of what you'll see your returns are once you can put yourself in a position that you have more money to invest with and you can grow your wealth faster because you won't have as much tax exposure. So paying that money up front to a CPA, I promise you will save you in the long term of what you have to pay every year to the government. And that information that the CPA is giving you is applicable as long as that tax code is in effect. So that information might even be evergreen for years to come just because they're helping you strategize based off of current tax codes. So that's something that I recommend every single time I talk to anyone that most people aren't doing. And it's an easy, quick fix to start down the journey of growing your wealth. Yeah, that's, that's, I think you're probably the first person that kind of pointed to that. And, and that's so important. And look, the, my experience is there's some CPAs out there. I mean, they're good people that they just don't want to advise you on something that they're not educated on. So if they don't know the tax law related to real estate, 
they, they tend to kind of shy away from it. So you want somebody that can give you good advice. The second thing I would add to that is if you get out and you surround yourself with people that are doing this, you know, people that are either passively investing or are actively investing, they are going to tell you the same things. They're going to tell you books to read. They're going to tell you podcasts to listen to. They're going to, they're going to tell you accountants to, to, to talk to and, and how to minimize that wealth because it is how much you keep, not how much you make, right? And um, so with that, look, you've got such a wealth of knowledge. Like what else would you share with listeners? Um, I love that you brought up that about the CPA. What else would you bring up with listeners? Okay, our listeners are a mix of um, passive investors, uh, people that are looking to passively invest for the first time, and syndicators that are looking to scale. So, you know, with that, you know, what's some knowledge that you can impart on one or multiple of those groups? For passive investors, what I would say is that most people look at investment returns first, then they look at the market in which the deal is located, and then they look at the team. But I think if, you know, rewind back to the beginning of the interview where we were talking about complications with the team, teams make or break deals. They are probably, I would guess if I have to quantify it, 80 to 90% of the reason a deal is successful versus unsuccessful. You can have an incredible deal with a bad team and that deal will fail, but you can have a mediocre deal or a bad deal, you know, not huge upside, but with an incredible team, make that deal a great deal. And it really just comes down to the team, the dynamics of the team, the expertise of the team, the team's experience with working with that type of investment asset and also the partners. So think of the partners in terms of the vendors, the property management company, all of the, you know, hands that are making this project together, the lenders, the way that everyone interacts together can create synergies that make the deal very successful. That is the most important thing you should look at. Number two is the market. The market dynamics will tell you the ability for that property to reach its full potential. If you have challenges to conducting business or you have businesses so in turn, businesses are vacating um, that area because of difficulties of operating businesses or, you know, uh, areas that are not landlord friendly. You're going to have challenges in terms of the operations once the property closes. The third component is the actual deal itself and the metrics. So understanding all of the, the metrics and the assumptions behind which it seems like a lot of work because guess what? It is a lot of work. There's no such thing as passive investing in the true sense of passive investing. You always need to do your due diligence and that due diligence should be done up front. You don't want to get down the line and say to yourself, oh, I wish I had known that this person had a felony or I wish I had known that they had never worked together before or I wish I had known that it wasn't a landlord friendly state because they keep complaining about the inability to evict tenants in a non-landlord friendly state. That's obvious. They should have underwritten for that in their business plan and that should have been communicated to me. Those are all things that you can figure out prior to actually funding and signing on the paperwork to invest. So that's what I would advise passive investors. For active investors, active, active syndicators who are looking to scale, I would say be patient 
and make sure that you continue to show up every single day. It's not easy. It is actually extremely hard if you're doing it right, because there are a lot of different facets to the business. And yes, it gets easier after your first deal and your second deal and your third deal. And that's just because your ability to build out your infrastructure is um, so much easier to achieve the larger you scale. This is a true business in the sense that the the more deals you do, the easier it is to scale and the easier it is to scale, the easier it is to do more deals. And it creates kind of this cyclical effect of it just builds upon itself, but you have to be patient. It doesn't happen overnight and aligning yourself with people who are at the next level of where you want to be will help you see what's coming down the road in terms of, okay, who's my next hire? Where am I going to build out tech support versus where am I going to still, you know, build you utilize things in house. Those are decisions that you will inevitably have to make as you scale, but don't rush to make those decisions. Don't become impatient. Um, If you stay the course, there's a, a lot of truth in the saying that, you know, the more persistent you are and the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, one one of the things you said was um, made me think of momentum. I mean, like, look, it, it takes a while to get it going, but then then you could build on that momentum as as you get one and two and more deals. Hey, what you've done so much? Um, what's your next big stretch goal? Um, so we have a goal by twenty thirty to have a billion assets under management. Um, one billion. 1 billion. So we're at a hundred million now. Um, and we're about to open a fund here shortly, which will have a diversified investment, um, offering. So we're really excited about that. Um, but I actually think that's achievable in less than, uh, the allocated time by 2030. But right now that's the goal we're focused on. Um, and we're just crazy goal. I mean, did you ever think that you were going to be a part of a group that was going to own a billion dollars in assets? No. And I definitely didn't think I'd be the one who had founded that company either. <laughs> you know, right. so, yeah. So to me, like when I worked at Glaxo, that was just like, okay, a billion in revenue, right. you know, it's just kind of like, employee, right? right now. You have a big, huge company, right? And well, now it's your company. Yeah. It's now, it's now something that we're building and, um, you know, we have other goals as well in terms of returns that we want to have for investors. That's something really important to us too. So this year, for example, we have a, a goal to return a million uh, to our investors um, in in um, in distributions and profits. So every year we, we are focused on um, all aspects of the business and not just, you know, um, not just putting this goal out there without seeing how we're actually going to get there. So, um, if we drive it off of returns to investors, the more we return to our investors, the more assets we own. Right. Yeah, so that's absolutely. kind of the driving force behind it. That's awesome. What, what do you like to do outside of work for fun? 
Um, I spend time obviously with my family. I have two uh, little girls that I love spending time with and um, playing five and seven. Nice. And they both have their own unique personalities, which of course I'm sure any parents listening could relate to. And then isn't that crazy? I, like you raise two kids crazy. from the same parents, and they have completely different personalities. You're, you're like, you wonder, funny. like, what's, yeah. what's your, your your impact because they're so different. Um, that, they that's are very awesome. different. Well, I applaud you too. I mean, you're going to be a great example for them, you know. Thank um, you. Being a mom and building a huge company. And look, you've got a lot of confidence in yourself. And that's come from time and work mm -hmm. and effort. Um, and so I, I applaud that. Um, Thank you. So you were saying spending time with family. What else? I compete still in riding. I compete. Um, I have several horses and I compete with them. And I also have a horse business on the side where I import horses and train them and, and sell them. It's almost like flipping horses in a sense, I guess. But um, yeah, I enjoy doing that. So I import them from Europe and then train them and, and sell them. I, th I think it's important. It's important to not only grow the business, but also enjoy some things along, you know, in life, yeah. you know, not just, there's some people that just grow and grow and grow and grow and, but their time, you know, for doing other stuff gets stretched. And that's the whole point is we're supposed to be trying to build freedom, freedom of time and freedom of money. Um, so that, that's awesome that you keep that as something that's important to you, your family and, you. and your own competition. So, Hey, if people want to reach out, what's the best way for people to reach out to you and get to know you better? You can follow me on Instagram at bad ash investor. Um, obviously we mentioned the other two sites, bardoninvestments.com and apartmentaddicts.com, but the best place is, um, through Instagram at bad ash investor which is B-A-D-A-S-H, investor, and all one word. Apart, it's apartmentaddicts.com? Apartmentaddicts.com and bardowninvestments.com. Fantastic. Ashley, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, look, this girl, she's got the white coat phenomenon from my standpoint. I've, I've seen her <laughs> all over YouTube. So, um, hey, check her out. Uh, they, she's got a great head on her shoulder. She's very smart and um, she's looking to do big things. So until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.